Happy Sabbath, brethren. It's good to be back here with you today. It's a blessing to be together, as was pointed out in the sermonette. We have been blessed so much to be in this relatively free nation, to be able to meet, to assemble in peace and in harmony. But we can meet freely now in this country and in most countries around the world. Do remember our brethren where they can't meet freely, and that is probably going to increase. Well, we are here today on the day before the Feast of Pentecost, a double Sabbath here, two Sabbaths in a row. We are here on this weekly Sabbath, which God also designates as a feast. Tomorrow is Pentecost, which symbolizes a number of things, including the giving of God's Holy Spirit to the church in Mass for the first time in history, something God has continued down through the ages for his first fruits. Brethren, do you see yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Can you see yourself that way? Can you picture yourself that way? Do you care? I think most of us want to be that way. If asked, would Jesus Christ consider you as his disciple? Different way to approach the question. Brethren, what is one area that we must all focus on? so that we are truly growing into more focused, dedicated disciples of Christ. What is one area that Christ will measure us in and test us on to make certain that we are growing into being desirous of being his disciples? What is one character trait that is essential, not only at the individual level, not only for you and for me, but collectively for the church to have? so that God will truly bless his work with continued growth. Today, brethren, I want to talk to you about one of God's perfect character traits, one that he's trying to develop in each of us through the power of his Holy Spirit. In fact, it's a, it's a fruit of his Holy Spirit. And I encourage all of you to really examine yourselves on this. Am I growing in this area? Is this a real fruit of God's Holy Spirit. And if you're not baptized yet, please don't tune out. This is not just for baptized church members who have God's Holy Spirit in them. Because if you're sitting here and you understand God's truth, if you understand that this is the Sabbath day set aside from the creation, as we learned about in the sermonette, that God wants us to keep it and that you want to be part of it. If you understand God's plan for mankind and you understand the holy days, Come back tomorrow, you learn a whole lot more about Pentecost. If you understand that God is reproducing himself in us and that he's got a potential for us and he made us in his image today because he wants something from us in the future. If you understand these basic things, guess what? You can't hide. You're called. God has opened your mind to understand these things without that Holy Spirit working with you. Yes, it may not be in you yet if you're not baptized or haven't been baptized by a true minister of God, understanding the truth so you can fully repent. But if you understand these things, God has called you. He's opened your mind and he has expectations for you. Big expectations. That's a different holy day. We'll talk about that later on another time. Actually, today, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Sabbath, represent the same time, the millennium. This sermon's for all of you. God has a responsibility for all of us related to the topic I want to talk to you about today. I want to explore this, and I want to give you several things that you can do to grow in this particular aspect of godly character, which also happens to be a fruit of God's Holy Spirit. Brethren, how much do you care about and love your fellow brethren? How much do you care about and love your fellow brethren? That's an easy one to answer, isn't it? A lot, right? Right? Hmm. And I encourage you to really ponder over this. Meditate on this. Do you love some brethren more than others? I'm going to get picky today. I'm going to meddle just a little bit, but I think you understand when I point the finger at you, what happens? There's three pointing back at me. So what I admonish you on 
and exhort you on, I've got to be willing to wear the same shoe and examine myself on the same level. So we're all growing, aren't we? And we have to grow together. Are there some brethren you love and others you don't love? Brethren, the term brethren that I'm going to use today is going to refer primarily to brethren in the truth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, um, brethren in the church. Although you could take that further, couldn't you? As we look around the world, we heard about people mowing lawns today out in the world. Guess what? Who do they look like? They look like their father in heaven too, just like you and me. They have got the same potential. Maybe not the same calling yet, but it's there. They are our brethren too. And so we need to keep that vantage point. But when I talk about brethren today, I'm going to talk about brethren primarily in the body of Christ. And you'll see why, I think, in a little bit. When others look at us, when others watch us, when they watch you, when they watch me, can, can they tell that we are true servants of Christ, true disciples of Christ because of our love for one another? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 to start. We'll go to the writings of the Apostle Paul here, a letter that he wrote to the brethren in Corinth, actually his second letter to them. The first letter he wrote a number of years beforehand, and he was pretty pointed in his first letter. There, was, there were some things going on in the church in Corinth, and you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 5, that shouldn't have been going on in the church. And he, he had to come down on them and say, you know what? You actually need to put one of these brethren out of the church, or two of them. And I tell you this because I love you. And he came back here in the second letter, and he started out by saying, guess what? You changed. It was really hard to reprimand you. It was hard to come down on you, but you know what? It was worth it because I see a change. So in the second letter, he's encouraging, he's admonishing, he's lifting up. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to read verse 5 here. What does he say? Yes, tomorrow's Pentecost. It's not Passover. But we're to be growing every day, examining ourselves every day. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that what? Jesus Christ is in you. How? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the Spirit. It's His Spirit in us that transmits His mind and His heart into us. If we're not baptized yet, yes, we don't have the Spirit in us, but guess what? It's all around us. And the more that we pray to God, God, guide me and lead me by your Spirit, the more God's Spirit will do that. It'll be God with us. We heard about some of this recently in a song just a few minutes ago. But he says, do you not know yourselves that Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you're disqualified. Verse 6, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. <clears throat> We've got to examine ourselves. Is Christ in us? Is the love of Christ in us? What is the love of Christ? I'm going to go into that in some more detail today. What does it look like when Christ's love, when the love of God is working through you? What does it look like? How does it manifest itself in your life? How will it manifest itself even more in the body, in the church, in, in our local congregations? Because when it is, you can see it. It's tangible. You can touch it. <clears throat> Brethren, most of you do a great job of serving each other, of looking out for each other, of working to help each other, making your fellow brethren feel welcome. I want to encourage you to continue this, but I want to encourage you to look even more deeply into yourself and what you do. God wants us, excuse me, God wants to use us to encourage new brethren that come. He wants to use us to encourage returning brethren who come. He wants us to encourage brethren who are having difficulties, challenges, trials. Are you having trials? If God has called you, my guess is yes. Now, maybe you could be in a little bit of an ebb in trial. You're between. Get ready. I grew up Spent some time growing up in Southern California, and we used to go to the beach a lot when I was a child. And it was really fun to go to the beach after a storm had come through because the waves were really big and you could ride the waves. But one thing I learned as a child pretty quickly is don't turn your back on the waves because a wave will knock you over, and if you get up facing the wrong direction, 
you're going to get knocked over again. Trials are like that sometimes. Sometimes we need help and encouragement through those trials, don't we? Sometimes it's helpful just to hear, I've been through that too, and I'm going to pray for you. How well are we doing with that kind of love? God wants us to continue working hard to develop more of his character so he can use us even more powerfully. John chapter 13. We were actually in John 13 last week in the sermon by Dr. Winnale. But let's take a look at something real briefly. That's Matthew. That won't work. John chapter 13. What is one of the powerful signs that people on the outside or people that God is calling can use to know for certain that we are disciples of Jesus Christ? We sing a song about it sometimes at church. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The word love here in the Greek is agape. We'll come back to that. But that's important. Our English language um, doesn't have some of the variations that the Greek language had. There are different words in the Greek that refer to love. Three different words, actually, that are used in the Scripture. Three primary words. We use one word to translate all of those words, and we call it love. We'll get back to that. Verse 35. By this all will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, do we have love for one another? What kind of love do we have for one another and how does it manifest itself? John chapter 15. Look over a page or two here. John 15. And verse 13, John 15, 13, here again is Christ talking in his sermon the night before he was crucified to his disciples and to us. And he said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now we're getting to agape. Do you have the love that it takes to lay down your life for someone? I think... I think I have the love to lay down my life for my wife and my children. How hard is that? Many of us could say that. What about that person across the room who you've seen but you've never met? Uh, They're a church member, maybe so. What about that guy that Mr. Ruddleston passed on the way into church mowing his lawn? Now, that's awful hard. What about that fellow in Afghanistan holding an AK-47 that says, death to Christians? Could you lay down your life for him? Ponder. Think about it. Whose mind do we need to be putting on? I won't turn there. Philippians 2.5. We're to put on the mind of Christ. Who is Christ? Every morning, there's a group of individuals in this building that gets together. The group varies from day to day, but they get together before work starts, and they say a prayer on the day that God will bless the work, that God will bless the hands of the laborers in the work, that God will be with those who are sick. And the prayer yesterday one of the comments that was made was, God, thank you for allowing us to be part of your family business. I'd never heard it put that way before, and it struck me. That's what this is, God's work, isn't it? That all of us are a part of. He's the Father. He's got a son, and guess what? He's got lots of sons and daughters. We're called to be part of that family business. It's called the work. It's called the church of God. God has called us to be there. He is the father. We are the kids. And we've got a big brother who's wanting to lead us to the kingdom. And our big brother, guess what he was willing to do? And do you look at him that way? Yes, we need to revere him. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is coming in power and glory. 
He is wonderful. He is the counselor. He's the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. But guess what else? He's our big brother. He's our sibling. There's a familial connection there. And can we look at him that way too? And what can we learn from our big brother? Some of you grew up with big brothers and tried to do everything the opposite of your big brother. Does that ring a bell a little bit? Parents who've had children, seen that a little bit? Sibling rivalry? We don't want to do the opposite of our big brother. We want to do like him. And we're going to go through some of those scriptures today too. Matthew 24. <clears throat> Matthew 24. Let's read some more of the words of our big brother. Jesus Christ, who just happens to sit at the right hand of the power. Matthew 24, verse 12. What does it say? Signs of the end of the age. How can you tell, his disciples asked Christ. Let us know. Come on, you've, you've got a connection here. You've sat on the throne. You know. You've, you've planned all this. Give us an idea of how we can tell when the end of the age is coming. And what did Christ say? Here's one of the things. Verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Guess what that Greek word for love is? Agape. The agape, godly love of many, will wax cold. Guess what? As you study the word agape, you come to the conclusion that you really can't have agape love without God's Spirit being present. The love of many who've had God's Spirit will grow cold. Why? Because of lawlessness in the world? Eh, maybe. Because of something done or done without the law of God. What is the law of God? broken down into two major parts. Christ summarized it. The first commandment, the greatest commandment, is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. What happens when you pitch the law? You stop loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you stop loving your neighbor as yourself. So when lawlessness abounds, the love of many grows cold or waxes cold. What is this agape love? And what are these different kinds of love? One of them is eros. We're not going to talk about eros today. Eros, Greek word, we get our English word erotic from. Sexual attraction more than anything else. And then you've got this other love, philia or philio. We have a word in English, Philadelphia, based on that same word. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is the city of brotherly love. That's what Philia basically means. It's a brotherly love. It's, it's the love you have for a friend, that camaraderie that you feel for them, <clears throat> to have an affection for someone, more like a feeling toward them. It's interesting. We're called to be what part of what church? Revelation chapter 3. The Philadelphia church. Yeah, maybe the Philadelphia era is over, but we're to be of the Philadelphian spirit. That outgoing, brotherly, camaraderie, love for each other. But there's this other word in the Greek called agape or agapeo. What does it mean? It means deep, dear love. It means godly love. It's, it's the love of a mother for a child. You know, from time to time we read about a terrible tragedy where maybe a mom is in a car wreck or in a fire with her infant. And what does she do? She wraps the infant in her arms, cuddles him up to protect him. And you've read, and so have I, about moms who are found burnt to a crisp and the child is still alive. It's that love for a parent that will do anything for the life of a child. Agape begins to get at that kind of love. Agape is outgoing concern. It's love that we act on versus love that we just feel. Agape is concerned to the degree that we're moved to do something. It's not just, I love you. It's, I'm going to show you I love you. That's agape love. It's the love of Christ. It's the love of God in us. It's not something that's innate to us. It's certainly not something that human nature can conjure up. It's against human nature. Agape love comes from God. It's the love that he shows toward us. If we don't have God's spirit in us or working with us, conjuring up agape love is just about impossible. 
This is one of the reasons why we encourage young people, not just young people, anyone, don't marry outside the body of Christ. Why? One of the reasons is because if God doesn't call that person, you may have God's Holy Spirit, and you may be able to show agape love, but you're going to be really disappointed because it's not going to come back to you. It can't because you need God's Holy Spirit. Now, God can work with people and bring them in. But if he chooses not to do that, you're not going to have that. That agape love is what gives you patience. It's what gives you temperance. And we'll read about some of those characteristics. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. First John 3, and we'll, we'll read here in verse 16. By this we know love. How do we know love? And here's the answer. Because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Agape. This we know agape. Laying down our lives for the brethren. Ask yourself, am I willing to do this? Can I lay down? Would I lay down my life for my fellow brethren? Do I have the kind, this kind of concern and compassion for my fellow brethren? Do I show this kind of love and compassion for my fellow brethren? And again, I've got to challenge myself on this and look at myself in the spiritual mirror of the Word of God. Do I do this the way God really wants me to? And guess what the short answer is? No. I need to do a better job. And as we try and put on the mind of Christ, we're going to spend a lifetime seeking perfection. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about that. We're never going to get there completely, but we should be growing. And we've got plenty of room to grow if we think about Christ as the one who sets the bar. 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we call it the love chapter. And guess what it does? 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a picture of what true godly love is all about. Do you have godly love in you? Do you want this kind of love shown toward you? God does it all the time, doesn't he? As we look through here, we'll see his love, and hopefully we can see some characteristics that we're developing. If we have these characteristics, some of them, they're not ours. They come through him. Yet we're reflecting him, and that's a good thing. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith, these are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We may talk about that a little bit tomorrow on Pentecost. Though I have all these things, so I could move mountains. Remember Christ said if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain? I don't want the faith of a mustard seed. I want the faith of a building a warehouse but i haven't even gotten to the mustard seed yet i I have you can ask my family i haven't moved mountains lately i need that kind of faith and i know you do too though i have these kinds of faith these kinds of gifts and i have the faith to move mountains but i have not love i'm nothing the gifts of the spirit without Godly love and compassion mean nothing. What does he liken it to? Verse 3, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I give everything I've got. And though I give my body to be burned. My marginal reference adds the addition, So I may boast. I'm going to give my body to be burned. Trumpeting my own horn. But have not love, it profits me nothing. What is love? What is this godly love? What is it like? Do you have it? Have you experienced it toward you? Love suffers long. It's patient. It's long-suffering. It suffers for a long period of time, and it doesn't give up. This is part of what it begins to look like. It profits, oh, excuse me, it is kind. Love does not envy. It does not parade itself. Hey, look at me. Look at the progress I've made. Look at the position I have. It's not puffed up. 
It doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. It is not provoked. Hmm. How many of us have that kind of love? We can get around somebody who's really annoying. And they start, as we say in the Western world, pushing our buttons. And we're not provoked. Hmm. Love thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. When people who deserve to get hurt, get hurt. It doesn't say, yeah, they got theirs. No, it says, you know what? I know they made their own bed. I know they got what they deserve, but it's really sad that that had to happen. Love rejoices, verse 6, in the truth. It bears all things. It endures all things. It hopes all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Another topic, but an interesting one. Whether there are tongues, gifts of languages, they will cease. Guess what? Zephaniah talks about in the kingdom of God, there's going to be one language, a pure language, and everything else is going to be gone. Languages will cease. Whether there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. But we see some of the characteristics of this godly love, this agape love. <clears throat> we see it manifested in what Christ did for us. We see it manifested in what the Father did for us. What does John 3.16 say? I'm not going to turn there. Many of you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that he who should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Here's a thought for you along the lines of agape love, to challenge you. I was meditating on this this morning. How many of us could give our life for somebody else? How many of us are willing to do that? How many of us, don't raise your hand, are moving toward wanting, really wanting to do that? That's what Christ did. Now let's take it from the Father's perspective. Parents, grandparents, you might be willing to give your life for that person down the street. But would you give your son's life or your daughter's life for that person down the street who doesn't deserve it? Tough question. That is at the heart of godly love. That is what we need to be working to develop. That's what our big brother did. And that's what our father in heaven did with his son. He looked at the world and he saw all these people that were sinning and could care less about him, who've thrown him in the trash bin. And he said, you know what? I'm going to let my son die for them. As a parent, as a grandparent, what does that feel like to even ponder over? That's godly love. That's, we can't do that humanly. <clears throat> Yet we have to grow into Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. God wants us to develop that. Ephesians 4. That's where we've got to go. That's what we've got to seek and shoot for. It's not going to happen overnight. It can't happen by ourselves. We cannot stir ourselves up to that point. That's got to be Christ in us. That brings us to that point. Ephesians chapter 4. This is quite a verse. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, verse 14, quoting from Isaiah, breaking in, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But verse 15, speaking the truth. How? In love. How do we preach the gospel? It's got to be in love. Speaking the truth in love. Why? that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Do you get that? Who do we grow up into? We're to grow up into Christ, our big brother. We're to grow up to be just like him, growing up into Christ. That's the aim. That's the goal. Romans 13 That scripture helps, and these scriptures help give us the direction as Christians. 
Again, the sermon is not aimed to condemn. It's not aimed to point a finger at. It's not aimed to put down. I think all of us are working hard. We're trying to overcome. And what I'm trying to do is encourage you to keep going down that path, keep prodding yourself forward to continue growing. Because as we do that, God's going to be able to use us even more. Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. We're to grow up into Christ. We're to put on Christ. As I stated before, reference Philippians 2.5, we're to let Christ's mind be in us. There's a number of things happening around the world today, aren't there? Things are busy. Prophecy is coming to pass before our very eyes. And guess what happens when prophecy comes to pass? It gets people's attention. When things get difficult, when it gets harder to find food, when jobs are more scarce, when currencies start tanking, there is no Zimbabwean currency anymore. It is gone. No longer operational. Iceland is worried about the same thing with their currency. It doesn't take a converted person to see the handwriting on the wall. It takes a converted person to know what to do with it. But when things begin happening like this, people begin responding. We heard the comments of Mr. Owino, or Mr. Uh, Muthama, excuse me. In the update, he met with some people in Kenya who've been reading for 20 or 30 years and now are motivated to do something about it. Some of you have returned recently for some of these same reasons. When people begin coming and wanting to fellowship and curious, they've got to walk through these doors and have the feeling that my wife and I had 14 years ago when we walked into the Global Church of God. We didn't even talk to anybody, and we knew this is where God was working. You can feel it. You look around, you see the people fellowshipping, interacting, showing love for each other. People come up to you after church and say, it's good to have you here. Why don't we go out to eat? Let's get to know each other. What can we do for you? It's the sign that Christ talked about in John chapter 13. You'll be known as my disciples if you have love for one another. Brethren, as we grow in love for one another in our congregations, people are going to see it. And it's going to help them. And it'll take away stumbling blocks that our adversary throws down before them. What can we do? What can you do? What can I do to grow in this godly love? Because there are things that we can do to make it happen, to make it more likely to happen. I'm going to give you a couple of points. Things that you can do, and I encourage you, work on these things, as I think many of you are. Here maybe is another motivation on why to work on these things. First action you can take, point number one. How can we grow in agape love, in this godly love? First action we can take is we need to learn to love people equally. Love people equally, especially those of the household of faith. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Learn to love people equally. When you look around the room at services... Can you honestly say, I love people equally in this room? Or in honesty, can you say, you know what? I love certain people more than others. That's human. That's natural. That's normal as the world goes. But we're called to something even more. Acts chapter 10. And we'll start reading in verse 34. Acts 10, 34. Does God love us equally or does he love us, love some of us more than others? Because you know what? Certain people spend more time on their knees. Certain people are more inclined to Bible study. Or does he love us the same? <clears throat> Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and he said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Does he love us more than the people in the world because we're called? No. In fact, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. God has a plan for us at a different point in time. It's not because he loves them less. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't show that kind of partiality. <clears throat> Luke chapter 6. Let's go to another scripture. And in Luke, Jesus Christ is 
addressing some human nature issues, an aspect that we probably all have some of in us. When we come to the point of baptism, what do we repent of? That nature. And then we start thinking after we come up out of the water and the nature kicks in again. It's a lot harder to get rid of than any of us would like to admit. And hopefully we can make progress with that. Luke chapter 6 and verse 33. What did Christ admonish us on? Luke 6, 33. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you, exp- you hope to receive back, what credit is it to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good to or lend to those, hoping nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Do good to those who can't do good back to you, knowing I'm not going to get anything back from this. Why do you do this? Because that's the love of Christ. That's what Christ does. That's what he wants done. Why do you do this? Because you care about those people. You don't care about what they can do back. You care about them. Romans twelve nine. I won't turn there. We're told, let love be without hypocrisy. Have you ever seen hypocritical love? Love that's there to get? I'll love you because I want something from you. Or I'll love you, but not them. What happens when you have that kind of love in a congregation? Especially if it's a little congregation. Everybody sees it, and it causes division all over the place. You've seen it. I've seen it. We can't have that. That's not godly love. Galatians chapter 6. As we think about loving everyone equally. Galatians 6. Verse 10, Galatians 6:10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Let us do good to all. I had a conversation with a church member years ago, and we were talking about serving people. And this person was really involved in the community, serving these groups of people and these groups of people, but they really weren't serving people at church. And I made a comment. I said, that's really good that you're serving people in the world, but God says we need to serve people in the church first. And his comment was, where did you get that from? I stopped reading, didn't I? Here, Galatians six ten. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. Especially if we can't take care of those in the household of faith, then the example we said is sort of pointless. Christ made a similar comment to the disciples, excuse me, to the Pharisees, didn't he? He said, you guys give your tithes and you you give your offerings and you let your parents starve. In essence, take care of them first and then give to God because that's part of what loving God is all about, taking care of. We've got to love those and take care of those of the household of faith first. Does that mean we don't take care of those outside? No. But we've got to take care of those inside the household of faith. How well do we do that? How well do you do that? I've got to ask myself the same question and then ask some hard questions. I'm a question asker. You'll see. But hopefully the questions can get us to think, and we can use them when we get home and we're on our knees and we're praying to God, God, help me be more like you. Help me let Christ live in me. We can analyze ourselves on some of these things. Let's ask some hard questions. Do I have favorites or even show favoritism? We read about God not being a respecter of persons. Do you have a best friend? Our kids have picked up some of that terminology, best friend. And what do we do? What have we told you? Don't, don't, don't tell me. We tell, we've taught our children it's not appropriate to have best friends. New Living Church of God doctrine. No. Why would we tell our children that? 
What happens if you're my best friend? How does everybody else outside of us feel? Well, I guess I'm a secondary friend, or I wonder if I'm even a friend at all. We've, we've talked to our kids about, you know what? You have good friends. Hopefully you work to make everybody you come in contact with a good friend. You're not going to get along fantastically with every single person. But to have a best friend is exclusionary, isn't it? It shows a lack of love for everybody else. Wow, great love for that one person. But what about everybody else? Another question. Do I fellowship with only the same people every Sabbath? Again, hard questions. And I'll be honest with you. I totally agree. It's a whole lot easier to fellowship with people you've got a whole lot in common with. You have to look back, though. How did I get things in common with that person? How did I even learn I had something in common? Well, I spent time with them. I developed a relationship. Guess what? You may have a whole lot in common with somebody else out there. You just don't know it because you haven't spent time. Do my actions make some people feel less important and others feel more important? The way I interact with people, who I interact with at church. Again, hard questions to ask, but if we ask these honestly, examining ourselves and asking God to show us, guess what? He's going to show us some areas maybe we need to work on. Why ask these questions? Because if we don't love people equally, we can't show agape love. We're choosing who to love. And that's not God's kind of love. Do I go out of my way to serve all of my fellow brethren? Another question. Are there brethren that I know about who need help and it's in my power to help? Again, questions to ponder over as we think about loving God's people equally. God is calling us, isn't he, to rule over and teach physical people for a thousand years. When we are gods, members of that God family, are we going to have the luxury of showing love to whom we choose? Or are we going to show love to everybody equally? Because that's what God is. You know the answer to that. So in this life, that's what we've got to aim for, learning how to do that. Again, it doesn't come naturally. To me, maybe it does to you. If it does, please come talk to me. I want to learn from you. Why does it come naturally to you? We need to be preparing now for that time. So point number one, action number one, to develop more of God's love in us, is to learn to love people equally. Point number two, action step number two, we need to remember our place in God's eyes. We need to remember our place in God's eyes. How does God see us? How does he see you? How does he see me? Ultimately, this point can be blended down to humility is what it's all about. Ask yourself. Do I see myself as better than, smarter than, a harder worker than, more diligent than, having more faith than others? You put in the name, the person, the face. Do we see ourselves that way? Do I think less of others because they're not like me or because they make decisions differently than I would make them? These are questions, again, to ponder, to push ourselves to think about as we think about do we see ourselves in God's eyes? How does God look at us? From the third heaven. There's an email that's gone around. It's called Factors of Ten. And it starts out looking at a leaf. And then it uses um, some satellite imagery as well as some contrived imagery. And it backs out by powers of ten. So you start out one meter from three feet from a plant. And then it backs out to 100 meters. And then backs out to 1,000 meters. And then 100,000 meters and so on and so forth. God sees us from a long, long way away. Most of us have, many of us have flown on airplanes. When you look down, when do you stop seeing people? Several thousand feet, they disappear. What does God see when he looks at the earth? And so how does he see us? As we put ourselves, we have a tendency to put ourselves on a pedestal above others. We all have that tendency, and that's what we have to bury. Matthew chapter 7. Sort of a comical analogy, if you really ponder over it. One of the things I like to do in messages is meditate on the concepts. And so you're stuck with me. As long as I'm standing here, we're going to meditate on this one. 
How many times have you read this scripture? Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not to not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how do you say that you're to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye when there's a plank in your own? What does that look like? Anybody ever had a splinter, a little piece of wood or metal that gets stuck in your finger? Painful, but can be very tiny. So what's it like to have a plank in your eye? Splinter, you have to get really close to see it. Think about a telephone pole or a tree. This is a, we had an artist back in the Worldwide Church of God who could have done a great job with this one. What is it like? Imagine somebody with a tree shooting out of their eye. What happens when they turn their head around? People are ducking. And so here comes this person to you. And you're trying to get out of the way because this big log is going around. And they say, you've got a splinter in your eye. Did you look in the mirror? You got a tree in yours, buddy. Let's make that more practical. Scenario. You come to church today. And on your way in, you stub your toe. And as you walk in, you're wincing a little bit because your toe hurts. You've got a little bit of a grimace on your face. Several people see that including me. I happen to show up at church, and I just had a terrible divorce this last week. And it was all my fault because of things I did. That didn't really happen. This is hypothetical. (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of people know about it and know that I treated my wife terribly and my children terribly. And you know about it. And... To celebrate my divorce, I went out and I went to a bar and I got a DUI and my name appeared in the newspaper and you happened to read that. And while I was out that evening, I happened to get some tattoos all across my forehead. And I show up at church with a t-shirt on with an old band called Megadeth on the front of it. And I put out my cigarette before I walk in the front door. The deacon at the front door gives me a hard time, and so I push him against the wall. When I sit, get ready to sit down for services, the little old lady who was going to sit down in the seat, I push her out of the way and say, that's my seat. And then during church, the kid in front of me who's eating a little cracker reminds me I'm hungry, and I take the cracker from him and eat it. And the mom takes him out crying. After services, I come up to you. Remember you had a frown on your face? And I say, you know what? As one brother to another, I just need to let you know, you walked in with a frown on your face today. And if people come in off the street and see that, they're going to probably be turned off. I really encourage you to look at yourself. Now, how do you take that coming from me after what you know and have seen? This is what Christ is talking about. The plank in your own eye. You're knocking people over with this thing and you're looking at a splinter in somebody else's eye. Remember your place in God's sight is the point. If we're going to show that outgoing love and concern, we've got to have the humility to go along with it. It's that humility that allows God's spirit to flow. It's that humility that allows God's love to flow through his spirit in us. Let me show you some contrasting perspectives here. And again, one-liners, things you may have felt, things you may have seen. But either way, it doesn't matter which end of the spectrum they're on, I think what you're going to see and agree with me on is they're going to get in the way of outgoing love and concern. Examine yourself. Have you ever had any of these perspectives? Do you have any of these perspectives? Well, I'm better educated than most. What happens when I say that? I'm standing above. Is that a humble perspective? No. What's the flip side of that, though? I'm not tarnished by a worldly education. Which one's more righteous? Which one is going to allow more love and concern to flow? You see the the dichotomy there. How about this one? I'm wise enough to know when to use a doctor. 
I know when it's time to do that. What does that mean? I'm wiser than those other people who don't. What's the flip side? At least I've got the faith to rely on God or my herbs. Which one is right? Are herbs wrong? No, not necessarily. Putting faith in herbs is wrong. But if I'm looking down on someone because they're not where I am, I'm putting myself up, and that's not going to let the love of God flow through me. It's going to make people feel like they're not as good as me, or I feel like I'm better than. Let's grab another one of these. How about I dress more appropriately on the Sabbath than those people? Hmm. Again, what's the attitude behind it? We need to come before God in the best we've got to honor him as the king of the universe on a day that he set aside. What's the flip side of that, though? I'm not bound by man's concepts of appearance. I'm here for spiritual reasons. Again, looking down. You, because you think you've got to dress right, are bound by human beings' concepts. I'm here for better reasons. Do you see the the contrast? They're both on opposite ends of the spectrum, but both are wrong. Both are going to prevent God's love from spreading. When you're around a person like that, how do you feel on either end? Hmm. Okay. That person's got... They're on their high horse, as we would say. No, we've got to be humble for God to be able to really use us. Luke chapter 18, Christ points out (laughs) a very interesting observation here. Luke 18, could you imagine yourself here? This is the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. Luke 18, and starting in verse 9. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Again, you see the way Christ has set it up. They trust in themselves and they despise others. They're self-righteous. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. God, thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And then he looks around or even as that tax collector. I fast twice a week, give tithes of all I possess. The tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He was humbled. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. What is our attitude? We need to know and understand that we are called, we are made in the image of God, and he's called us for something very special. That's the Feast of the First Fruits tomorrow, to remind us of that fact. He has an incredible calling for us, and we must not and we cannot put ourselves down at the same time. At the same time, we are sinners, and we deserve the death penalty, and we can't put ourselves up because of that. And again, I'm I'm not saying any of us intentionally do that. Any of you do that. But hopefully you're beginning to see how that kind of an attitude gets in the way of that outflowing love and concern. If we're concerned with ourselves, how can we be concerned with other people? We've got to fight to avoid developing the I'm better than you perspective, which is prevalent in society today. If we develop any hint of this perspective, we can't truly love our fellow brethren. So point one was learning to love everybody. Action step one. Action step two is ultimately staying humble, keeping a perspective on where we stand in relationship to God. Action step number three is to go out of your way to serve others. Go out of your way to serve others. That's beyond it being convenient to serve others. And again, this gets at the core of who I am as a human being having grown and developed under the influence and sway of my father, former father, Satan the devil. Remember how Christ antagonized the Pharisees? He said, you are of your father, Satan the devil. As we grow up in that environment, we pick up all his character traits. and We have to put them off. 
But his character traits, one of them is laziness or self-centeredness. I've got it. I'm recovering from that, but I'm still working on it. I'm guessing many of you are. Ask yourself, am I willing to give my life for others? Again, all others are just certain ones. Do I know everyone at services? Some of us are newer and are getting to know, but how long can we hide behind that? Well, let me do this. I'll point the finger at you. How long can you hide behind that? And I've got three pointing back at me. We've got to get to know others. I've been in congregations where there are 25, 30 people, and people have been there for years and don't know everybody in the room. How does that happen? It cannot. It should not. not that's not godly love. We've got to go out of our way. <clears throat> do I make an effort to talk with different people each Sabbath? Or in a small congregation with everyone. That won't work here unless we stay here till midnight. Young people. This is not just for baptized members. Teenagers. Kids. Do you make an effort to go out of your way to talk to somebody other than your friends on the Sabbath? Talk to some of these older people. They're pretty interesting. They've got some pretty interesting stories sometimes. Older people. Do you make an effort to talk to the teens? Do you know their names? Do you know their interests? It goes both ways. We've got to do this. You know this. I'm preaching to the choir today. I'm reminding you about what you already know, but we've got to make sure that we're doing this. Ask yourself this. Do I notice when somebody misses services? If you do, good. You've got to know the people, though, to know when somebody misses. Next step, next question. When I notice somebody misses services, do I check on them? Make a phone call, drop them a card, send them an email. Is everything okay? I missed you. I haven't seen you in a couple weeks. What happens if we, do, if we do that? What happens if everybody does that? What happens if somebody comes to church and they don't come back for three or four weeks because they've decided I don't want to go back and they get 60 phone calls? Where are you? We miss you. Where have you been? Guess what? Peer pressure might just talk somebody into coming back. <laughs> they should see the love of God in us. You know, as a church pastor, one of, the, one of the really exciting things for me has been calling up someone who came to visit for a couple of weeks, and I don't see him for three or four weeks. And I say, hi, do you remember me? Oh, yeah, I remember you. I've missed you. You haven't been here. People have been asking about you. Is there anything I did or is there anything the brethren did to make you not want to come back? One of the most exciting things is when they say no. The brethren were so welcoming when I was there. And it's not them. I've got to work through some things. But when I hear that, they did what they needed to do. No, they were wonderful. Boy, as a pastor, you're just like, yes. They're doing it. They're letting the love of Christ live through them. Do we do that on a regular basis? Do I make the effort to serve brethren? Talked about this a couple weeks ago, to have them to my home, to invite them out, to see if they need assistance with anything. Do you know who the widows are in the congregation? We've got some older folks in this congregation, and you can label yourself however old you want to be. But from what I've learned, some things get a little more difficult as you get older. Some folks may need help cleaning out the gutters on their home, mowing the yard, changing a light bulb, taking care of some stuff they couldn't do anymore. Do we know people well enough to know what some of those needs are? What about people might need a uh, ride to services? We're in an economic downturn here, and gas is more expensive and things are more difficult. Do we know who needs a ride? Is there anyone near us? I mean, we're spread out as God's people. But is there anyone who lives relatively near who might need some help? Ask yourself that. Follow up on that. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. I won't go there. We're admonished, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, even so much more as you see the day approach. We need to take advantage of the opportunity to be together, to get together, to let God's Spirit flow through us, to show that love toward each other. <clears throat> Romans 12. 
Romans chapter 12, back to the writings of the Apostle Paul. Different church this time, not, not the church at, at Corinth, but at Rome this time. Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I admonish you, I encourage you, I reach out to you to try and motivate you. Brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's what he's called us to. Are you a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ, a disciple of his, and especially to those in the household of faith? God is watching, isn't he? He wants us to grow. He wants us to become more like him. He wants us to think more like him. He's given us his Holy Spirit or access to his Holy Spirit to help us do that because he knows, and he pointed out in the book of Hebrews, the problem wasn't with the law, it was with the Israelites. Without God's Holy Spirit, it's impossible. It can't be done. Although not necessarily comfortable for all of us, and perhaps even against our personalities, God expects us to develop agape love. Some of us are really shy. And it's really, really hard. But God doesn't say, I want you all to overcome except those who are really shy. He says, I want all of you to. Now, the expectations are different. For a very shy person, God's not going to expect you to have 50 people over to your home tomorrow. But to go up and meet one new person at services and get to know them, God does expect... You see where I'm going with this. God's going to move us along. Yeah, it's going to be different for different people, but he, all, he wants all of us to move forward. He expects all of us to move forward. There are some fast, fantastic examples of love in God's church. Outgoing love. The kind of example you want to be like. Are you one of those? Would you like to be one of those? If you are sitting a pretty good example of outgoing love and concern. What can you be doing to become an even better example? And more importantly, a better instrument of service in God's hands. Again, we can't rest on our laurels. We've got to continue to grow. If you're not setting the type of example that you would like to, and that you know God would like you to, because of whatever reasons you have, what can you do to change that? to become a more powerful instrument in God's hands, to let God's love grow through you more. What can you do? Brethren, God has called all of us to develop the mind and the character of his son, Jesus Christ, our big brother. He wants us to have a love for our brethren that is to the point where we'd be willing to lay down our life for each other. God wants to work with us so that we become more like him. He wants us to develop even more outgoing love and concern for the brethren and certainly for the world around us. Do you know that preaching the gospel is one way we do that? Why do we preach the gospel? Well, Christ said, do it, didn't he? And he said, if you say you love me and you don't keep my commandments, First John, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. So yes, we, we preach the gospel because Christ said, Preach! Why did Christ say preach? Because the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Christ loves them. They're made in his image. They're his children in that sense. He doesn't want anybody to fail. We have a precious truth. It's called the good news, the gospel. It tells of an awesome time. It tells that everything around us is not going to end in disaster and destruction. There's a better time coming. And guess what else this gospel tells as part of the Ezekiel warning? If you change the way you're living and turn to God, you don't have to go through this horrible time that's coming. Preaching the gospel to the world is love for them. If we don't preach the gospel to the world, we're not showing agape love for the world. There are churches who believe essentially what we believe, but they say that the gospel has been preached. And all we need to do is take care of ourselves, prepare the bride. That is not agape love for the world. That's why Mr. Meredith is on fire about getting the message of the truth to the world. We've got to go on television stations. 
Is it some ego thing? No. It's love for all those people out there who are mowing lawns today and going to the movies and going to ball games and shooting people. It's love. And you're part of this work. You are with the opportunity to help love this world and show that love. Brethren, as you examine yourself, as you look at the extent to which you're developing godly character, challenge yourself to continue to grow in that godly love. The challenge is, how do we have more active love in our lives? How can we work with God to develop more of this type of love for others? I gave you three ideas in the sermon. You can add to those. Challenge yourself on the questions I pose to you. Look for opportunities to develop more of God's loving character. Practice showing and demonstrating God's outward love for others. Take a closer look at your life and think about how you can make some changes, even little ones in your life, to reflect God's outgoing love even more. Start planning on a couple of ways you can do this in the local congregation. Talk with your spouse. Talk with your family, those of you who have kids or grandchildren in the church. Talk with them. Brainstorm some ideas. How can we show more outloving more outgoing love and concern for those in our local congregation. And brethren, pray. Pray for God to give you his love. Before we went out to the field, my wife and I approached some senior ministers in the work that we really respected and thought they were doing the kind of job we wanted to do in serving God's people. And we asked them, what advice do you have for us? so that we can be the best, I can be the best minister, she can be the best minister's wife, that God can make us. It's interesting because we talked to different people in different times and locations, and several of them said the same thing. They said, pray to God to give you more love for his people. We did that. And we continue to do that. And guess what? God answers that prayer to give you love for his people. I encourage you, pray that way. Not every day. Pray once a week that way. If you want to go beyond that, please do. God, give me more love for your people. Guess what happens when you get more love for his people? You have more patience, more kindness, more gentleness, more outgoing love and concern. You don't have some of the worries that you have. Brethren, God is molding and fashioning us into him. He wants us to grow up into his son. Work with him. Continue to. Seek him. Continue in the positive path you're on because you're on it and you are working hard. And we've got to grow together. Develop more of the character of God's perfect love, brethren. And as you do that and as I do that, God's whole church will grow. We will share and exude the fruits. And people will walk in here and they will say, I know they're his disciples for the love that they have for one another.